Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast of the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 4th of February 2019 and this is episode 99. On today's programme, I talk to historian Jack Sheldon about the German army during the Hundred Days. I spoke to Jack from his home in the south of France. Jack, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the German army in the Great War? Yeah, well, it uh, began when I was, because uh, I served uh, a full career in the army and I was coming up towards retirement. I'd always been interested in the, the whole question of uh, military history and uh, the First World War in particular. My last couple of jobs uh, involved working, first of all, uh, in southern Holland and secondly in uh, Brussels. So I was very close to the northern part of the Western Front and used to visit it regularly. About this time, the uh, Battleground Europe series was really just getting going, produced and edited by Nigel Cave. And on a trip to Epe, I bought a copy of his uh, uh, book about Sanctuary Wood. I read it and thought, oh, that's very interesting because he he talked about um, uh, the some of the battles in 1915 uh, where I knew for a fact that one of the predecessors of my regiment was heavily involved. So I wrote him a letter saying, can't understand how you managed to write about this particular battle without talking about the 4th Battalion of the South Lancashire. Well, of course, I know the answer now, uh, and that is you can't put everything in these books. But... Um, Anyway, as a result of that initial contact, I wrote to him uh, when it was getting, I don't know, about a year or so to go before I left, and said, I now see that there's several volumes on the Somme, but you haven't got one on Redan Ridge, um, where one of our first battalions was involved on the 1st of July. So I said, how about me writing you a guidebook to Redan Ridge? And he, he got back to me and said, yeah, it's fine, we've got somebody on that, and he only lives 100 metres away from the where it all took place. But come and see me. So this would be about uh, 2001, I suspect. And I went down to, uh, to the Somme, linked up with him at Beaumont Hamel. He said, right, well, you know, most of this is well covered, but can you do anything about the, the German army? Because he knew by then that I had studied at the German Staff College and spent a number of years in Germany. And I said to him, well, I, I don't know is the answer, I mean, possibly, but my next job is going to be military attaché in Brussels, uh, sorry, in, in Berlin, so I'll find out. And uh, at the beginning of uh, 2002, I arrived in Berlin, and uh, and at that point, um, I, I set about trying to find an answer to the question, you know, could I write about the German army? So what I did, well, about three weeks after I was actually posted there, was uh, I applied for an official visit to the German Army Military History Office in Potsdam. And because that was a reasonable request and it's a, we were sort of friendly allies, they couldn't say no, but they said yes. And I got a, went over and had a, a visit um, at Potsdam, um, got briefed up on what they were doing and all the rest of it. But over lunch, the, the head of the office, a chap called uh, Captain Jörg Dupler, said to me, well, what's your particular interest? I said, oh, well... First World War, etc., etc. 
you know, what, what have you got in the library on the subject? And he uh, summoned his First World War expert, a chap called Gerhard Gross, and said, you know, Herr Gross, what is there in the library um, on the First World War? And the chap said, well, we've got 1,500 regimental histories for a start. I said, ah, oh, very interesting. And what about, you know, using them? And he said, oh, well, it's a, it's a publicly funded library, so anybody can use it, you know, just uh, come along and use it as a reference library. And I said to him, oh, it's no good to me because, uh, because I'm working full time. Uh, and he said, oh, well, because you're interested and, and because it's you, uh, we'll give you the same borrowing rights as a member of staff. And so for the rest of my time in Berlin, I was able to borrow 10 books at a time and establish very quickly that, yes, indeed, there was a lot of information, um, especially in combination with the surviving archives, which I was also introduced to by Gerhard Gross. And that's really where it began, because I was able to say to Nigel, well, yes, it's doable. And he said, right, well, we want something on the song as soon as you can do it. Uh, and that's how it all began. Before we start examining the German army in 1918, can you give us an idea of how the army was actually structured in the final year of the war? Well, of course, it had taken a considerable, um, a considerable battering. But, of course, uh, most of the fighting on the Eastern Front um, had, had come to a halt. And uh, so what they did was uh, to try and maximise their chances in 1918 was to concentrate what force they got left in the West, with, of course, with a view to uh, a series of offensives, because they were well aware that there was a danger of the Americans arriving. They rather underestimated how quickly that could happen, uh, but they thought they got a window of opportunity in uh, 1918 to uh, carry out a series of, of linked offensives, which would uh, split the Allies up, enable them to be defeated in detail, and win the war. So in the West, they were split into effectively three army groups initially, one in the north commanded by Crown Prince Ruprecht, uh, one in the middle by the, the German Crown Prince, and then in the south, then as far as the Swiss border, was another army group commanded by Duke Albrecht of Württemberg, who had been the fourth army commander in 1914. Um, and within the various army groups, there were uh, different army groupings, which were shuffled around, and below that um, were a whole series of corps. And what tended to happen, both in attack and defence, was that the, the, the core army, army group structure remained more or less the same, and divisions rolled in and out, depending on the actual requirement. So in, in the spring and... Um early part of 1918, the German army launched a series of, of offensives at which pretty well petered out by 1918. Why did they launch these series of offensives and why, why were they unable to defeat the Allies in the early part of 1918? Yeah, well, of course, a lot of it's down to, uh, it's down to resources, really. I mean, the fact of the matter is that despite every effort, uh, all they managed to achieve was local superiority. So, for example, in the uh, the march when they launched uh, the attacks, the Michael Offensive, they had actually put most of their efforts into that, and of course it, it petered out. They drove a big a big offensive and created a large salient across the old Somme battlefields, but it cost them a lot of their best men, their best leaders, and and a lot of material. The other thing was that by this stage they were very very short of horses, and of course at that time. They especially had nothing much in the way of motor transport. Um, and so supplying this extended line became extremely difficult. And when it, when the thing reached its culminating point and they could go no further, despite having got reasonably close to Arras, sorry, uh, to Amiens uh, at the end of it, they were forced 
uh, when they launched the next part or the next offensive to withdraw troops that had already been in action for days and reuse them further north in the, in the next series of, of attacks. So what you had, in a way, was, was a wasting asset. They, they certainly uh, were able to pick and choose right through until the July where they were going to attack, but the amount of, uh, of uh, power that, that they could put into each thrust uh, rather tended to fall away until by the July, when they tried to launch an extremely ambitious attack uh, either side of, of Reims, the thing fizzled out within really 24 hours. So we come to um, August 1918 and the Allies start their final offensive, which is known as the 100 Days Offensive. How did the Germans cope with this um, Allied attack? Well, of course, the, the first attack actually had taken place you know, in the, the wake of the, the Reims uh, offensive in mid-July, and basically the French drove into the flank, into the northern flank of this uh, uh, salient that that particular operation had left. And so they had actually been fighting pretty desperately uh, on what became known as the Second Marne uh, battle. And that was deeply significant because the the aim of, uh, of the Reims thing was to draw Allied forces down onto that attack and then to launch another attack called Hagen up in Flanders. But in fact, the forces which were designated for Hagen ended up being drawn down towards Second Marne. So they were already in a weak position um, when, of course, as you rightly say, the, the final 100 days offensive began. One of the real difficulties, and beneath it all, not only was the shortage of horses, but the fact that they were running out of manpower hand over fist. I mean, leaving aside the huge losses of, uh, of their offensives in, in 1918, they, they were so short of manpower that they were effectively going to run, run out of reinforcements by August 1918, whatever happened. So here you had a situation whereby a known uh, manpower problem was exacerbated by all the losses of their uh, 1918 offensives. And so when the Allies started to attack, in fact, they were infrequently going up against units which were shrinking and certainly simply not being reinforced in any meaningful manner. And that had a significant effect on how things developed during the autumn. So how did the Germans try and overcome these problems of manpower? One of the things they tried to do, and it goes back to 1916, when Hindenburg and Ludendorff assumed supreme command in the, in the September uh, they also introduced a thing called the Hindenburg Plan, which was to increase the production of arms uh, and ammunition dramatically. Uh, of course, that in itself also took up manpower. Um, in fact, despite every effort, I think somewhere in the order of two million men were involved in uh, production, in industrial production by early 1918, of, of whom nearly half could have been in the army. So there was a cost. On the other hand, what it did produce was lots of a great increase in um, artillery and a huge increase in automatic weapons as, as it became harder and harder for them to conduct a flexible defense in depth for lack of manpower. What they did was they substituted it uh, with a large number of uh, machine guns. And of course, because they were on the defensive, and so they didn't have the problem of trying to advance with all these heavy weapons, uh, they could set up some extremely dangerous situations on hilltops, around wooded areas, any built-up area at all. You, you only need to have six or ten stoutly manned machine guns around a hilltop village, and the attackers 
we're going to suffer heavily in trying to take it out. And, and that was really the pattern of events. And it goes a long way to explain why, with very limited manpower, the uh, the German army and those of it which parts of it which were not surrendering or giving up readily managed to take in a huge toll of the Allies in the final weeks of war. You've already touched on it, but how effective was the German army during the what we call the Hundred Days? Was it was its performance uniform or was it very very patchy? It was it was certainly patchy. What happened was that um, I mean a lot of people. A lot of soldiers within it, um, their morale was on the floor uh, by the summer, and a lot of units and formations either surrendered very readily or didn't fight with anything like the determination that they had had been used to. I mean, classic examples are the uh, Battle of Amiens at the beginning of August 1918, when the British Army made a very large advance and thousands of prisoners were taken, and that that, uh, was mirrored elsewhere along the front during this period. But some formations remained extremely well-led, and they fought very hard indeed, which, as I say, and and so as a result, they were rushed up and down to where the point of main danger was uh, along the front, and, and some divisions actually changed locations 12 or 14 times during 1918. So it was a sort of dizzying kaleidoscope of different formations being rushed into plug gaps wherever the threat seemed to be the, the, the greatest. Now, there's been quite a lot of debate about the German army and whether it collapsed in 1918. Do you think it did? And if so, why? Certainly, its, uh, its ability to resist faded away very fast. I've hinted already, I think, I mean, one of the big problems was that they ran out of manpower and they ran out of horses. And that made it extremely difficult, even if they wanted to do, to fight on longer and harder to, to do so. Also, there's, it is quite clear that the morale in some parts of the army was very poor. There were large numbers of people who went on leave and simply didn't come back, or they hung around in major areas. Berlin had tens of thousands of of deserters or people who overstayed their leave uh, by October 1918. And this had a dramatic effect. Now, the Germans blamed a lot of it, of course, on being stabbed in the back. I think that, that's, um, I mean, it's certainly true that, that there were moves from, from the sort of socialists and what have you to bring the war to an end at any cost. And that did have an effect. But the real problem, I think, was, was war weariness and the fact that they had been encouraged to believe at the beginning of 1918 that one big final effort would win the war for them. And when it didn't happen, then morale took a plunge in many cases. And there's plenty of evidence that, that the that the stouter formations that were still marching forward at, at this time of great danger were, were catcalled and shouted at the strike breakers or war prolongers and all this sort of thing. However you look at it, it suggests an army, really, which was starting to certainly rot anyway. Um, When uh, people talked, and they did towards the end, about continuing the war on through the winter and so on, it's highly unlikely that that actually would have achieved anything, because for a start, the Americans were flooding into uh, Europe in vast numbers. And and secondly, you know, the answer... It remains unanswered exactly how they would have maintained this force in the field. I mean, they they fell back to one line after another, many of which were not prepared in any meaningful manner, either as defensive positions or somewhere where you could actually spend the winter. So I think that that was, uh, you know, would have been extremely difficult. And collapse, yeah, effectively, that's that's what happened. Although 
again, even even the, the pullback when they were ordered after the armistice to pull back at a tremendous speed uh, to, to Germany, most of the stuff was uh, staff work was still pretty good and and units which were well led and formations which were well led marched back in pretty good order in the circumstances. Obviously one factor which was beginning to affect all armies in uh, late 1918 was the Spanish influenza. What influence did that have on the German problems that they encountered? There were of course two waves of, of flu uh, in the uh, in the midsummer in just sort of June July. There was the first wave um, the official German medical report of the war said that although quite a large number of people were affected by it, it wasn't particularly dangerous. And, it, and they say that it had the early, the early one had no particular effect on on the ability of the army to carry out its uh, its role. Now that the second one, the October epidemic, is altogether more difficult to assess from the German point of view because casualty reporting really fell apart. There are no accurate figures from about uh, August of 1918. And so it's very hard to say how many people that carried off, but it, it clearly did have an effect on top of everything else. You know, people had been short of food, the rationing wasn't good. Uh, so they were clearly vulnerable to the the effect of, of the second wave of flu. But really, I think by then, uh, things were falling apart to such an extent that, that the flu and the casualties it caused the second time round was probably just another sort of factor uh, amongst many, which meant that they were unable to continue the war and, of course, had to ask for an armistice. So I suppose when you reflect on the, um, I suppose, the final year of the war, and there's a sort of debate that the German army either lost the war or the Allies won it um, through their uh, tactics, etc. Whereabouts do you stand on that debate? Well, it's a combination of two things. I think there's no doubt that, in a way, the Allies were surprised at the, at the speed with which the war was concluded in the, in the end and have tried to go through some of these factors. My own feeling, probably, is, is that uh, the, the writing had been on the wall for the German army, really, for about two years. The remarkable thing really was that, that after the Somme, that they managed to go on fighting for another two years and pretty effectively. The problems simply mounted. They, they were already running out of manpower by 1916. I think this is one of the, the most important factors. They had had to call up year groups uh, well ahead of the normal time. Uh, generally, in, the, in peacetime, in the early part of the war, they called up men in the year in which they became 20. By July... 1916, the losses at Verdun and the Somme cumulatively meant that they had to call up the 19-year-olds. And, and if that wasn't bad enough, by November 1916, they were forced to call up all the 18-year-olds as well. So they'd got as far down in terms of conscription as they possibly could. You couldn't uh, conscript anybody under the age of 18. They were reluctant to do that anyway. So that in effect, they were on borrowed time. They only got to 1917 by some fairly extreme examples of sort of managing the manpower, extracting people out of rear areas, etc. And then, of course, as I said, the Hindenburg plan started sucking up large amounts as well. So effectively, they had run out of manpower and their ability to continue the war beyond summer of 1918, leaving aside the effect of the offences, was extremely poor. So on the one hand, you've got the Allies uh, advancing with uh, increasing confidence and increasingly effectively, but you've also got a wasting asset facing them. So in terms of who won, who lost, I, I think really, in, in the end, the Germans ran out of resources and their morale was insufficiently high to enable them to counter 
fact, that, that simple fact. And the Allies also, as I say, fought with increasing effectiveness. The British uh, Army had uh, reached a high standard of, of efficiency by the summer. And these two factors, I think, came together. Uh, and, uh, and as a result, it, it was, uh, although it would have been difficult to say precisely when the war would end, in retrospect, you can certainly see why it happened. And, and all I'd say is it had as much to do with the Germans running out of resources as the Allies improving their performance. Finally, Jack, where can people find out more about your research on the German army? Uh, my, my, well, I mean, the answer is to uh, do a quick internet search and see what I've written so far. In addition to various little articles for Stand 2 and the Bulletin, I've written so far uh, eight full-length books about fighting in the West, uh, I've also written a number of battleground Europe books to parts of the battlefield, m- many of them with Nigel Cave. Um, so the, that, that's the simplest answer is have a look at what I've written. Jack, thank you very much for your time. Okay, pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman, and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.